You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, May 20, 2020, just after market close in London. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by Roger Hurst. But first, here's Nick Correa with the latest market news. Thanks, Ash. Today, I'd like to discuss Spain's reopening, where they're currently at, and what potential hurdles they'll experience in the coming months. We've talked often about Italy and the challenges ahead for them, but Spain will also struggle on the path to recovery to the same degree as Italy. According to the IMF, Spain had approved a four-phase plan on April 28th for reopening, and different provinces will move further along than others depending on how each is faring. Most of Spain is in phase one now, with the exceptions of the Madrid region and Barcelona region, which remain in phase zero. Spain is also looking to reopen its borders to tourists by the end of June in the best case scenario. The country is heavily dependent on tourism, making up about 12% of its economic output. And even if they're able to reopen their borders late next month, the industry is still expected to lose 93 to 124 billion euros in revenue, or 100 to 134 billion US dollars, according to Excel Tour. In order to effectively attract tourists though, Transport Minister Jose Luis Abalos says that, quote, we must make Spain an attractive country from the health point of view, end quote. Banco de España has also emphasized this point in one of their recently released studies on what the potential macroeconomic scenarios could come about as a result of COVID-19. If there is a perception that the outbreak is not under control and declining in Spain, the rate of recovery would lag severely. This study posits three different GDP predictions based on how severely economic activity is hampered. The pie chart shows the weight distribution of different sectors in Spain's GDP. And the bar graph shows how productive activity in each of these sectors will contribute to GDP this year in light of restrictions. Looking at these graphics, the service sectors most hurt by the lockdown comprise about a quarter of Spain's GDP. Accommodation and food service activities, leisure, retail trade, and transport. For this model, the assumptions around reduction of output for these sectors, as in accordance with Royal Decree 463-2020, are as follows. 100% for accommodation and food services and leisure, retail and wholesale trade somewhat less than 50%, and 60% in transport. The study also discusses other assumptions and caveats about reduced outputs for the other sectors, but across the board for the two-week cessation of non-essential activity in late March, output declined by 60%. With all of this in mind, it's possible that the fallen average GDP for Spain is estimated to be negative 6.6, negative 8.7, and negative 13.6%. All of this points to Spain's greatest pain point being tourism and travel as they move toward recovery. And it doesn't help that travel to and from Spain will be heavily restricted as it is in Italy by the European Commission. Understanding what's going on in countries like Spain and the challenges they face is an extremely important angle to consider as the pandemic continues to rage on. Knowing what's going on throughout the world helps us develop a more rounded perspective of the effects of the virus. 
And with that, I'll send it back to you, Ash. Thanks, Nick. Welcome, Roger. Hi, Ash. How's it going? It's going well. Roger, what are you looking at this afternoon? Well, in Europe, there's been a lot of, well, actually, no, I want to say there's been a lot of attention. There's been some attention on the deal from the EU, or at least this proposed rescue package from the EU. Um, but in some ways, maybe the the kind of the slightly strange thing is that it's not really been getting a lot of coverage. It's been in the press. People have, you know, all the main papers have picked up on it. But it's not something that's really kind of caught the headlines, which I think is is interesting because it's one of those things which is potentially a game changer. When I say potentially, there's been many things over the last decade in Europe that, that have been potentially game changers, but ultimately none of them have. But there are one or two ingredients of this thing which potentially could um, resonate for a lot longer. Roger, for those of us uh, potentially in the U.S. who aren't watching the situation in Europe as closely as you are, can you give the basic context and the significance of what's just happened? So what uh, is Macron and Merkel have got together and they sort of they've been a little bit at loggerheads recently in terms of how um, the sort of the, the the worst excesses of the downturn should be funded. People talked about Corona bonds. They were um, put to one side to so the ECB funding. But this is something from the EU. So not the Eurozone, but the EU, where they're talking about a um, basically a rescue package. They're talking 500 billion. And the key at the moment is they're talking about this being grants rather than loans. Now that's going to be the sticking block because there are the, the frugal states like Austria, the, whole, the Netherlands, that would prefer these to be loans rather than just dispersed. Um, but it's a baby step so far, and it's a step towards slightly more sort of federalism, slightly more unified Europe. But getting all those member states to agree on anything is an easy statement to make, but a very, very hard thing to actually put into action. But if they do agree, then it starts to change things because it means that at least Germany now is, is moved that way. Can the Germans convince the Dutch, the Finnish, the Austrians as well? Who knows? Um, and it's small at this moment in such a size that it's not really big enough to have an impact. 500 billion, it needs to be two, three, maybe four trillion. Because remember, the, the Eurozone, well, the EU as a block is about the same size as the US and 500 billion would be nothing in the US. So it needs to be more, but they're floating the idea and they're now going to try and get some backing for it. Yeah, that's really interesting, Roger. Do you think the significance of this then is in the sort of the metaphor, what it says about the potential for cooperation, especially between France and Germany? I think that's important, but you know, both of these leaders are potentially at the end of their reign. Certainly Merkel's coming towards the end of it and Macron's approval rating has fallen. So maybe this is sort of last throw of the dice. And I know we've talked about this before, but um, you know, Germany potentially has some problems down the line, particularly within its banking system. So you know, maybe there's a realization in Germany, or at least with the German leadership, that firstly there has to be cooperation. And people talk about, well, you know, Italy would be better off outside, but Greece would probably have been better off outside. You can't leave. Now that's the eurozone. But you can't leave. Ironically, the fact that Britain has left or will leave has probably allowed this whole package to to make its way to where it is at the moment, because. Britain would have probably opposed it because Britain would have been on the hook. Um, but, you know, there's all these different elements to it, which, you know, it shows that we know that Europe is a basket case because it's too unwieldy. And at least two of the biggest players are trying to look like there is some union because the accusation for the last three weeks, and particularly after the ruling by the German Constitutional Court, what the ECB was doing, it looked like Germany was trying to, at least the German, um, the German courts were trying to pull it apart from the inside. So maybe this is a, a little bit of a response to that as well. Yeah, you know, it's something that Ed and I talked about yesterday. You and Ed, both alumni of Deutsche Bank, um, and we both discussed the significance of what that might mean uh, for the 
broader European banking sector. What are your thoughts on that? I think very much in line with with what you guys were talking about yesterday, which is it's something which the writing looks like it's on the wall um, for not just the German institutions, but for a lot of European institutions, because the size of the debts versus the economy is just not the numbers just don't add up. I mean, what's the market cap of Deutsche Bank? It's around about 12 billion euros. I think Commerce Bank's about 5 billion. And non-performing loans, if you have 5% of non-performing loans and a balance sheet of 600 billion, well, your equity is completely wiped out. And in a bad scenario, it could be 10%. So these are companies, um, in, there are many companies in Europe that will eventually need uh, a bailout from the government. Now, clearly Germany can't do that whilst it's basically pointing and wagging its finger at, at Spain and Italy and the others. So I think Italy and, and the, the sort of peripheral countries would like to hold on and keep going to the point where effectively these banks do need help from the state and then they can say, okay, we're all in this together. So I think that's the, that's very much what's at stake here, what's at play. And it's why I've said before that I think that the European banks are absolutely key. Banks everywhere are absolutely key. But the European, European banks are key, but it's actually probably the German rather than the Italian banks, which are key within Europe, because we've always known that Italy's got problems, Spain has you know, slightly lesser problems, but has problems. Germany, we know, has problems, but they've been, they've been, the can has been kicked down the road in a way that that you know has not in Italy. In Italy, we know it. In Germany, we assume it, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When I have problems, it's sorry, mate. When uh, you have problems, it's we're all in this together. Exactly, and I think that's that's what's coming. And you know, Europe. Europe does well at pulling together when things get really bad, which comes to this other element, which is, you know, we're talking about the recovery in assets and markets. And if things start to recover, then actually the will of Europe becomes less. In the US, if things get better, the ability or the will of the central banks actually reduces. So this is actually where, you know, at the moment people might think, God, these things can just keep on going forever in terms of recoveries, et cetera. But the more we recover it in both regions, the less it happens. I still think that what really gets Europe you're moving from where they are now, 500 billion. It's just not much. It needs to be trillions. For that to happen, I think you actually need more of a crisis. So I think Europe's got to kind of feel more pain before this will ever become reality. They're very good at fudging things, basically. You know, it's so interesting, Roger, that, that just to hear you discuss it, there's so many paradoxes that are inherent in all of this. You were speaking uh, with me earlier off camera, and we were talking about what you called the dance of death. Yeah, well, that's right. So the dance of death, what we keep on seeing with these is that, you know, you see the markets going up, the markets go up. Um, in fact, let's wind back a bit. The markets go down first. So we had the big, terrible downside, which is, you know, the, the death spiral. Then the central banks and the fiscal authorities step in. You get the, the safety mechanism and then you get the rebound. But the more you get the rebound, the less likely they are to do it. And in many cases, like in the US, they haven't really pulled the trigger. I know they're now in doing junk bonds. And yes, we're doing reasonable size within Europe. But then if things stabilize, then you kind of go, okay, we don't need to do as much. And this has actually been the dance of death the last decade. We keep on seeing this, which is markets roll over, central banks come in. It's been central banks before rather than fiscal authorities. This is so huge, it's fiscal authorities as well as central banks. But then if it stabilizes things sufficiently enough, and we all start thinking, wow, you know, we're going to make new highs on a lot of risk assets, then they're going to step away. And then it'll require those risk assets to roll over and force the hand once more. So... You know, this is why I think what we've seen within Europe is something that's good, but it needs the pain to really come to fruition. You know, this tees up a really interesting question. Uh, one of the questions that we've been getting a lot in the comments, uh, we got uh, John W. and Derek R. yesterday asking the question, effectively, how is liquidity getting into U.S. equity markets if, Fed, if the Fed is not buying stock? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of these things where, how does it happen? Because I think um, Jeff Schneider points out that um, I think it was that the um, equities rallied before the liquidity came. And so you had a front running mechanism. Now, in reality, I think one, one of the ways to look at this is what happened between September of last year and February of this year, which is that you had a gumming up of the of the funding system. And so the Fed stepped in by providing overnight liquidity, which they extended to two weeks, and then they extended it slightly longer dated over the end of the year to make sure that that liquidity remained. Now, what was happening is without that liquidity, a lot of the, you know, the liquidity that the Fed does, it basically goes to the banks, the banks then lend it to who they want to. And if those people who are kind of borrowing it are those who are playing into the market, and if you've had a deleveraging scenario beforehand, that deleveraging that we saw here within, well, within every market over the last two or three months, if you come back with that liquidity, you stop the deleveraging first, and then you fund a releveraging. And then you get the sort of Pavlovian conditioning. And this, I think, is really what actually happens, is that people front run, front run the Fed. They front run the Fed in terms of the um, corporate bonds and in terms of the um, in terms of the equity market. And if you also look at what QE and what bond yields did, you know, you'd think that over the last decade, when people were or when the central banks were buying bonds, buying bonds yields goes down. The exact opposite happened. In fact, yields were falling. Then you have QE. Then they come in the buy and buy the bonds, and bond yields actually rose. So everybody front front runs these things that Pavlovian conditioning. But ultimately, what you're effectively doing is in a world where forward forward growth expectations, so inflation expectations and growth expectations are flat or zero, and then the Fed is basically saying, here's unlimited liquidity at a level that everybody can borrow at as long as the banks we're giving it to will lend it to you, or oh, you're mainly the, the other sort of brokerages and traders who want it to trade the market. And you look at the opportunities of growth in the real economy, you go, well, I'm not going to lend it to the, to the real economy. I'll put it into the equity market and the, the bond market or wherever is going up because I know I'll get a return. So you have that front running of it, but you also do get the that response of cheaper liquidity, cheaper funding, increased leverage. Deleveraging took place, provide liquidity, releveraging takes place, and then people front run it. I think that's what we've been seeing and it's effectively what we've been seeing for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So more of the same, but at a higher level. More of the same. And look, the problem with all of this, and this is, again, the dance of death, which is that the Fed in September added liquidity. And I use these charts regularly on, on the Refinitiv program. If they added liquidity, the, the S&P went up. When they reduced it, the S&P went down. Two consecutive weeks that they reduced it in February, the second week of that was the week that the markets imploded. Now, there was the first two weeks that they pulled out of the market in three months. There is a a correlation in there. Now, whether it's the liquidity that's going straight into the market or here's a liquidity that was provided to those generating leverage and they went into the market before they got the leverage in, who knows? But there is that relationship was very clear for those three or four months. Yeah, Roger, I know you follow the uh, the technical levels uh, very closely. You follow Fibonacci retracements. What are you thinking about what happened yesterday in US equity markets? So we, we're still around that 62% level. Um, it's, you know, we were through it, but we're not through it um, very clearly, not like we have with the NASDAQ. So the NASDAQ, well through that, and then the NASDAQ filled the gap. So there's this gap um, three or four days after the peak. So that's been filled. The S&P is still around there. But as we've discussed before, we're in a world where the S&P is not the whole of the US equity market, and the US equity market is not the global equity market. US equities have a relatively um, much quicker response to this potential from central bank liquidity than other markets do. We saw that on Monday where the Fed, Jerome Powell in that speech, talked about the liquidity he could provide the market was unlimited, quite powerful words. European markets kind of don't really trade on that. 
But then we saw a big move in the US. And on Monday, what was interesting is it was inflation related assets that moved the most. So if this was all about the, you know, the potential for a vaccine, that might have been the trigger. But what we saw was consumer stocks, consumer discretionary didn't move more than the S&P, which you'd think if there's a vaccine on the way, you'd want to back the consumer. And the healthcare stocks didn't really move. What moved was um, commodity stocks, oil, oil stocks. And within the precious metals, this was really interesting, in precious metals, silver moved aggressively, industrial uses, Gold did, but eventually gold rolled over because once you started to see yields moving and real yields started to effectively go higher, there's a great correlation between gold and real yields. Gold sold off. So it was that move that we were seeing in inflate, well, inflation, but firstly in the yields first, and then we saw inflation catch up. But all these inflation things, bonds as well, all these together suggested that this was a reaction to what Powell said. And this market for the last 10 years has loved low growth, not negative growth like we have now, but low growth and lots of liquidity. It hates high growth, which is tightening conditions, and it doesn't like a de depression or a recession. But if you get back to low growth and liquidity, that's the best scenario for the last 10 years for equities to outperform. Yeah, you know, Roger, so many important points there, uh, US equities, uh, yields, and precious metals. But let me get back to something you said in the beginning that was especially important. You talked, uh, you and I talked earlier about the five stocks and the impact the five biggest cap stocks on the S&P have had. Can you explain why that is so important? Well, again, it goes back to this, you know, when we look at the S&P, and I saw something anecdotal, I think it was today, where if you took out the five big stocks, the five tech stocks, the S&P would be around about 2350 and not around about 2950. Remember the lows was 2200. So this is all about concentration. This is all about five stocks. Five shares are defining the trajectory of the headline US index. And the S&P is being dragged up, um, obviously, by those. But the reality is that everything else is still in a bear market. And if you look at you know, the real economy stocks, you know things like the Russell, which is slightly more related to the macro, that's been struggling. Now, again, that had a big day on Monday. But in terms of its retracement, it's nowhere near the levels of the S&P and the NASDAQ. The banks themselves, yes, we've had a couple of decent days, but the banks made a new all-time low relative to the S&P last week. In Europe, they made a new all-time intraday low. So these are stocks which are effectively looking at the real economy and are not doing well. We're seeing in five stocks concentration and an acceleration of that concentration into the hands of the few. We're seeing a five-year process take place in five weeks. Yeah, you know, you said to me earlier something that was especially poignant. You said, "Well, what about the other 6.7 billion people in the world?" And I'm cu I'm curious, uh, what what about, uh, for example, uh, European equity markets and how they're reflecting current macroeconomic conditions or not reflecting current Europe? Well, I think they're reflecting a little bit more like the reality that's out there, which is that we've sort of had 38 to 50 percent retracements, 50 percent if you're lucky, around some of the European markets. Banks, as I say, making that new all-time low, not just a relative low which is the US. So the US banks are not making absolute lows by any means. They're making new relative lows to the S&P, whereas in Europe, they're both relative and absolute. And you can look at nearly all the major indices, and they're all still significantly down. So in Europe and in the rest of the world, you can see that the equity markets have not recovered as much. And remember, the Eurostox, this is the Eurostox 50, has not been anywhere close to the 2000 peak. That's 20 years. Japan, 1989 peak. So everywhere else is still in a very, very long-term bear market. And the US has been the beneficiary of all of this because it's had an active central bank and it does have a handful of world-beating, world-leading stocks. And that's where everyone's parking their money. But the money on the way up has been under half of the money on the way down. And what I mean by that is the volume. So 
4 million per day S&P futures on the way down into the end of March, 2 million on the way up. And on Monday, it was about 1.6 million. So volumes are really low despite that 3% move on Monday. Yeah. Um, I know you're also looking very closely at oil markets. What's your analysis of what's happening right now? It's, I mentioned this, I think it was about two, two or three weeks ago, where I sort of said, look, you know, now we know that what we saw in April was um, to do with the expiry and the delivery. And so and, and to, to look at this, and you know, I got a little bit of pushback on that at the time. Um, but what I, was, what I was meaning by that is that what we saw in April was, um, and what we saw in that sell-off to 40, minus $40, that wasn't the oil price. That was the price of oil for delivery in a specific area of the US for a specific time, which was the May contract expiring in April. And I looked at the volumes and you, know, you could see this going, I mean, this is all the you know, horses bolted, so this is all old, old information, but it might help understand how we should look at the oil market today. On the Monday where it fell to minus 40, there was only 130,000 open interest in that contract. It had all migrated to June. The volumes on that Monday in the May contract when it went to minus $40 was around 200,000 versus closer to a million in the June contract. Now, Tuesday was much more interesting price action when we saw the June contract fall to around about six and a half dollars. And what we actually saw there, this was all rolling of contracts. This is where the real pressure was. Brent never got below 16, which is the global benchmark. On that Monday, it never moved. But what we're seeing is that people had the ETFs that were backed by futures in the front month. They rolled them out and got them into what was then the June, into the July and August. And the real giveaway was about three days later where we saw the uh, June contract fall 15 to 20%, but the July contract was up 2% that day. And this was the big commodity indices rolling their positions out of the front month. So we then look at what we saw just last week. We had around about 130,000 open interest in the middle of last week in the June contract, which, which expired yesterday. July and August had more than double that each, around about double that each. And the volumes in July and August were already double the June. When we're looking at futures, we've always been used to looking often at the front month contract where we want to find price discovery. Price, price discovery should be the contract which has the highest volume. And because of what we saw in, the, in, in that uh, May expiry, futures volume has shifted to one from the front month to the second and the third month. So anyone's looking at the oil price WTI in the US should look at the CLC2 contract as much as the C1 contract, C1 front month, C2 second, C3 third. They're giving us a better idea. So you know, what, what was the real low in the oil price? You could say $6.50 in that June contract. In reality, I'd say that you know, it probably didn't really drop below 10. Brent didn't, and you know, what further out didn't. But that was the impact of the expiry in a contract which takes delivery of physical, which Brent doesn't always do because you can cash settle. So I think it's key to understand that because this is an impact you can see in many ETFs. You know, VIX, VIX futures back VIX ETFs, they had a problem. Oil futures behind oil ETFs they had a problem. Any ETF or product that's backed by futures, you've got to look at how these things roll, what's the second month, what's the third month, and where's the volume, because the volume is where the real price is discovered. And Roger, is that volume shifting forward because uh, people are just looking to try and find a proxy for the actual uh, demand level and supply level for the physical commodity, shifting away from CL1 because it's too distorted by technical factors, uh, storage, and those sort of things? Yeah, I mean, it would scare the hell out of everybody. I mean, you know, there was still you know, 100,000 contracts at exchange, and clearly there was enough people who realized that they couldn't take delivery and didn't want to take delivery and there was no facilities. So that scared the hell out of the market, which meant that everybody rolled out 
of the front month into the second. They basically reduced their risk. The way to think about that whole move was a bit like anyone who remembers Volkswagen in 2008. Volkswagen in 2008, it went up around about, well, it went up to being the largest company in the world for about one day because all the shorts got squeezed out very, very aggressively. So it was a technical issue around it. People therefore just wanted to get out of the front month, spread the risk, simple as that. Switching gears a little bit, you've also been watching emerging markets, especially in the FX space. What are you looking at there? There's a couple of things where I'm, you know, I'm looking at stuff which may be moving against my core position. My core position is that there'll be dollar strength and emerging market currencies will be on the back foot. But we're having some decent moves recently in terms of the South African rand strengthening against the dollar, the ruble strengthening against the dollar, maybe because you know, we're getting that move in the oil price. Um, but also when I look at the JP Morgan Emerging Market FX Index, it's been consolidating and, and today, I think it was moving around about 80 basis points in favor of emerging markets overall. And so I'm just looking at that because you know we've been talking about the US equity market is not the rest of the world. Now, maybe it's leading the rest of the world and we just got to look at everything else as having a three month lag or something like that. I think that this could just be one of those um, head fakes because we had such a big move in the dollar versus emerging market FX with no rebound so far that maybe we're overdue a rebound. I've got to start watching some of the technical levels because if we start to see rebound and strength in emerging market FX, um, then maybe the hope phase lasts longer. Um, I think it's it's kind of an interesting one because as we talked about earlier, which is the rest of the world is going into its bad phase in terms of the in terms of infections and infection rates. But if you think about the world, it still revolves around the US consumer a little bit. And if we think the US consumer is going to get a little bit better, and if we think that the Fed's going to do QE infinity then maybe you should have a little bit of a rebound in all those things where structurally you think if the Fed does more or is unlimited, then the dollar goes down. But I think as we've discussed before, that's, again, and earlier today, that's the Pavlovian reaction. But every time we've seen the Fed announce a package or allude to a package, we normally get two, maybe three days of dollar weakness and strengthen all the assets that love dollar weakness. And then the reality kicks in again, and that move against the dollar doesn't last. Even if we look at the euro, and should the euro go up or go down on the size of the package that's been announced? Well, the euro is going up, but it's still, you know, it could get to 111.25 and still be in the downtrend that existed for the last two or three years prior to that volatility in March. So I'm ju we've just got to be aware of that. You know, I'm, I'm not someone who's going to sit there and go, I'm a dollar bull, I'm a dollar bull the whole time. Seeing a bit of weakness versus EMFX, seeing some breakouts. Is this just a, an extended consolidation phase? I think so but we've got to keep that on our radar. When you think about that as a trade, what are some of the ways you might express it? The easiest one, if you believe that the emerging market currencies are showing a little bit of stability is that emerging market equities have massively underperformed, like everyone has, the S&P. So you would start to look for a period of emerging market outperformance. So if you said, look, I'm bullish, and I'm bullish in this next phase, which is one where we might see a bit of weakness in the dollar because we believe what the Fed said, then you might want to put on you might want to be long if you want to be long anything, the EEM. Now, you've got to be a trader to do that because this has been a trade where the S&P has outperformed the EEM basically since 2010, and it made a new high in that ratio only a few, about a week or two ago. So it's a trade no more than that. But if you believe that, if you really want to play emerging market FX with a little bit of beta, then you could play for, you could play the upside in equities through the emerging market. You could even play emerging market outperformance of the S&P. But as I say, I think you should be glued to your screen if you're doing that, because my core thesis is still that you know the dollar looks stable and we're just getting a normal reaction to a very, very um, 
a very, very uh, liquid comment from Jerome Powell at the weekend, but one which I think will take ages to play out. And like I was saying with the dance of death, mm. if things do react like that, he won't do that. At which point you've got to sell them all again until you sell them down to the point where he will do that. So it's a trade and no more than that. Yeah, so a lot of transitions, feedback loops, complicated time, complicated positioning. Roger, any final thoughts within that context of what you're looking at going forward? So the the overall kind of the overall feeling for me here is one which is trying to look through the real data. And it's it's trying to get this feeling for I think we get a V-shaped recovery, but what I mean by that is we get a V-shaped recovery where that recovery is going to be somewhere below where we were pre-COVID. So we're going to see these things where things that got absolutely destroyed will rebound and on charts it will look like a V. It has to because of the magnitude of the destruction that we've seen in such a short space of time. And then we'll go, it's a V-shaped recovery. But what matters is where's the terminal point of that recovery? And if the terminal point of that recovery is somewhere below uh, where we were at the beginning of February, then we've got problems. And I think I saw anecdotally again, I think it's Georgia, USA, Georgia, that um, three weeks after reopening restaurants, something like 84% down on bookings there. And you can see the data out of China. This is the alt data. You can see that, yes, people are going to work. Car usage during the week is higher because people don't want to take public transport. No one's going out at weekends. No one's consuming in the way that they did before. The pattern of consumption has changed. And last time I looked, there is no vaccine. And last time I looked, the UK itself is trying to test everybody. 100,000 a day, we're failing. That would be 660 days, nearly two years, just to test people. The time frame we're talking about here is not short. So when we get that recovery, which looks like a V, I'm fairly certain that that recovery, that terminal point of this initial recovery will still be significantly below where the consumer was. And that's the important thing, particularly for Western economies, where the consumer was in the early part of February of this year. Yeah, that's very well summed up. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all. Good to be with you again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.